0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Listen, this week we're going to start a new sermon series. We're not dropping the hundred things, but we've finished the Old Testament. You know, we're, I'm preaching through the longest sermon series in history. A hundred sermons about things you really should know from the Bible we've finished 50 of those messages out of the Old Testament. And before we ramp up for another 50 in the New Testament, I wanted to take a diversion um, for a little while, a a detour and look at the book of Acts. And one of the reasons I want to do that is um, that the book of Acts has always been very, very special to me, especially as it relates to harvest. And when we are beginning the church, I meditated on the book of Acts. I read that that book so many times, you just have no idea. I read the book of Acts again and again, begging God, show us what we're supposed to do with this church. What kind of church should we be? Are we going to take off on some human ambition and do something we're proud of, or are we going to do something that would delight the heart of God? And now, 15 years into it, um, I feel like the church is in pretty good shape, but I'm experiencing this hunger to see God powerfully explode on the scene again, and, and that the Spirit of God has been leading me back to the book of Acts at this season as I'm asking the Lord to send us a spirit of renewal and a second wind as we face the next chapter of our church's history. And so we're not going to walk methodically through all of Acts, but I'm going to show you, like ESPN Sports Center some highlight film. What I think in my editorial privilege are some of the, the things, the scenes or the stories from Acts... That are so powerful and so relevant to where we are as a church that I want us to hear them together. And I want those passages and the Spirit of God working through that to energize us as we gear up for another season of church life. Now I want to read the first of those passages. It's Acts one, one through five. I know it says in your bulletin a different title, but the, the title for this morning's message is a powerful beginning. A powerful beginning. And here's what, here's what it reads, Acts 1, 1 through 5. I'm going to read out of the ESV. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, we've had a crazy, crazy summer. We've spent the last month, like I've told you, assembling IKEA furniture until I never want to see Swedish words again for as long as I live. We've been hanging artwork, we've been cleaning, alphabetizing books. It's a big deal to move into a whole new ministry center. And the dust is settling, and we feel very blessed as we walk around this facility to see all that God has been doing and blessing us with. But it has been exhausting and, frankly, very distracting at the same time. And so in the midst of all that crazy activity, we missed a very important landmark. By we, I mean me. A lot of other leaders, like, are we going to, and I, I just, I felt like I was too crowded to really think about it, but we've been in this building now for just over a year. It's hard to believe that it's already been a year since we um, began packing up everything, cleaning all our stuff out of Alliance Fellowship Church, um, getting acquainted with this new uh, facility that we're going to be in. Do you remember how exciting it was how new this whole place was. Do you remember that day that we met? I think it was June 26th or something. June 20th or 26th. We met here in the back right there by the loading dock. And these guys pulled up the shiny new trailer and you guys got to you know, see our brand new Ram 2500 Hemi pickup truck. And so many people, we had like 60 people out that day getting trained for how to use all this stuff. These guys showed us. And they remember they said... Before too long, you're going to be able to set up this place in 30 to 45 minutes, and we're like, whatever. And we're doing it week after week, and it's just amazing to me. All these people paying attention, trying to figure out how to do this. Do you remember when we were in the auditorium, and how many people we had trying to set up that screen for the first time? I, I'm amazed and so encouraged to see week after week that when I arrive by 9 a.m., everything is magically set up. But it's not magic, is it? It's people coming out here, devoting themselves to Jesus Christ. And when I see this place set up week after week, I see the worthiness and the beauty of Jesus Christ because I know that that's what you see. That's what keeps all the volunteers going. Even something as simple as a restroom sign, you know, those things don't just drop from the ceiling. Somebody hangs them every single week. All these different areas of our church's life are done by hand, and it's been so exciting. And do you remember the energy, the buzz that was in the air that first couple of weeks, and how new it all was? And I felt like God was getting ready to do something amazing at our church. And I think the last year, we have seen God do some pretty cool things at Harvest. And I feel gripped by this, that, that it's just the beginning, that we've only begun to see what God wants to do in and through our church and don't get me the wrong way, I'm not saying exploding in large numbers and, and doing everything bigger and better, but I mean lives really being changed. People who are walking about in lostness and anonymity, and God's going to find them and reach them to the people of this church. People who are in the shackles of addictions and brokenness that they think they'll never have victory over, and they're going to have life change through the ministry of this church. And so I feel like just we've just begun to see what is possible through Harvest Community Church. And that's why I think the Lord seems to be taking me back to the book of Acts because it was such an important part of those heady early days of our church's life when I and a, and a small number of close friends, you know, we, we started really loving each other, uh, catching a vision for what this church might become, and we were pouring ourselves out and the book of Acts really was our guide. I taught a lot from Acts in the early years and And I think people maybe got sick of hearing the stories, but the truth is, I think God has done it. I think he has done something really beautiful here. I'm so proud to be a part of this church. I don't ever, ever want to leave. And short of a scandal and you guys kicking me out, it has been my daily prayer for years that God would let me die at this church. Just grow old with you, have one church my entire pastoral career, never move on. I, I hope that doesn't fill you with a sense of dread, but that's what I'm praying all the time. Now you know, um, as I think about that and look at the book of Acts, one of the things you see early on in the history of Christianity is that God didn't just slink onto the scene, he exploded into the world scene and he chose some of the most influential and pivotal cities of the world to break into the world. And in just one sermon, for example, Peter preaching the gospel saw 3,000, then on another occasion 5,000 people come to Christ and presumably those families along with them. What we're seeing in the very early church is a mega church sprouting up overnight, networked across an entire city, meeting in homes, leading thousands to Christ, sending missionaries all over the world. It was an exciting, amazing time to see this new movement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ Burst onto the world scene. And I think a lot of people are dissecting that, wondering what was their secret? How do you grow a mega church overnight? Willow took like 30 years to get where it is. These guys, in like a couple of weeks, bam, 20,000 people meeting in one city. And there's miracles happening, supernatural stuff. What is the secret? Now, I've got to confess, I'm a, I'm a book junkie. I buy more books than I read, but I love reading. I love books. And there is, there's such a glut of books in the Christian publishing market right now trying to answer this question, what's the secret? What, what kind of church should we be or try to build to become the greatest church in the world? There's so many people trying to give the answers to that. I'm not poking fun at these guys. I've been blessed by a number of these books. But everyone's trying to figure out what the formula is. There's missional church. There's deep church. There's connecting church. There's multi-site church. There's sticky church. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds gross. There's the ripple church, organic church, prevailing church, the blogging church, viral churches. It sounds contagious. Simple church upside-down church. There are so many people trying to give the answer, what is the secret to the thriving church? In fact, in my last count, I have no fewer than 169 books in my library written on the subject of the church, written from an American point of view. And I love reading those books because that's my business. I am in the church business, so I want to know. But the more that the Spirit of God leads me to the book of Acts, the more clarity I'm receiving, that really we don't need a whole lot of gimmicks, we don't need some secret thing. The ingredients that build the kingdom of God are so simple. As with most things, the power is in the simplicity. Only a bad chef throws in a gazillion ingredients, one after the other, to kill the imbalanced flavor of the last thing they threw in there. The best dishes, how many foodies are out here? How many guys are foodies? Don't you know the best dishes are often like two or three ingredients. You taste the meat that you're trying to eat, right? I mean, was that Benjamin who said meat is what powers Superman? You want to taste the food, and so you don't want to drown it in a million different things you guys know what this is? This is a 1966 AC Cobra 427 Super Snake. This particular car that you're looking at sold at the Barrett Jackson um, auctions for $5.5 million, the most expensive muscle car ever sold in history. The AC Cobra, especially 1965, 1966, tops my short list of cars that I know I'll never own, but would love just once to drive before I die. What a beautiful machine that is. It's just, and I, I, I was in Alex and Olivia's neighborhood recently. There was a guy driving one around their neighborhood. I just wanted to stand out there and listen to his engine as he drove back and forth. Those are my few moments of weakness where, where I just wish I had more money. You know what I mean? But you know what the crazy thing is about this car? It sells for $5.5 million. This is the dashboard, man. You'd think for 5500000 million you'd at least get a CD changer or maybe GPS navigation. Look at that thing. You notice anything about the dashboard of an AC Cobra Super Snake? There's no bells or whistles. There's no gimmicks. There's nothing cute or flashy. It is exactly what you need to make that thing rocket forward and keep it under control. And that's all you get but it's all you get because it's really all you need. And for a motor car enthusiast, a purist, this is the ultimate in a racing car. It's simple. It's functional. It has everything you need. And it's not weighed down by all the extra stuff because if you're driving that car, you could care less what music is playing. The music is the sound of the engine. Are you feeling that? I'm sorry if you're not a car enthusiast, but it's hard for me to switch off that picture. I just... One more look. Hi. The reason I'm bringing that up is because I think the ingredients of the mighty, thriving, life giving, gospel centered church, the church that Jesus longs to see, the ingredients are actually pretty simple. And in order for the form of this sermon to match the truth of what I'm saying, I'm going to try to keep this sermon very simple. I don't want to elaborate with a million illustrations or tell a hundred jokes. I want to show you how simple it is. These guys, mostly uneducated, blue-collar type guys with no formal training except for a couple, began to establish a beachhead for the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most explosive way. And what was their secret? Well, let me reveal for you what I think Acts 1-5 through tells us are some of the key ingredients for the church. Key ingredient number one, so simple, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Look what it says. By the way, this is Luke writing uh, to a friend of his, probably a Roman official of high rank. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You know, I'm so thankful for people like Luke, who, do you know that he's a physician by training, a medical doctor... But that wasn't all that he wanted to do with this life, because once he met Jesus, he became completely captivated by the person of Jesus Christ. He became consumed by wanting to know more about the roots of this movement, and he began to make a personal study of the history of the early church and early Christianity. And he brought a physician's keen eye for detail and observation. I mean, I think doctors really know how to look at a thing and see that every detail might tell you something. So he recorded it all, and he wrote two volumes. The first was the Gospel of Luke, which by far is the longest gospel, the, the, the most voluminous work there, telling the story of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And then he wrote the Book of Acts, which is volume two, chronicling the establishment and the spread of the gospel in the form of the early church in the first century. Do you know that putting the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts together it makes Luke the most prolific author in the New Testament? He wrote more of the New Testament by sheer volume than even the Apostle Paul. And I am so thankful because I am kind of a history buff. When I hear about something referenced on the radio, I can't wait to pull over and Google it on my iPhone. I need to know what happened. And it would make me completely bonkers if we got all this history and tradition, but no one wrote down what actually happened. And for me, as a, as a lover of history, the details are where it's at. I don't want to hear a bunch of guys landed on some beach in, in Normandy and they're like, fought. Who cares about that? I want to know how many, where do they come from? The, the details of a history enrich our love and appreciation for how the greatest things in life and in faith are anchored in real life in meat and bone, brick and mortar, flesh. This is a real faith that happened in real space and time. And I'm so thankful for Luke. And what he's pointing back to is the first book, the Gospel of Luke, traces out the time when Jesus, in his earthly life and ministry, for a period of three years, invested very heavily in a small group of men and women. He poured his life into them. And it says this is all that he began to teach and do meaning that that whether it was through his verbal teaching or whether it was through the example he set with his perfect and sinless, spotless life, Jesus in those three powerful, magical years poured everything good in himself into the lives of these people and by doing life together with them, walking in relationship with them, he transferred to them something absolutely critical to Christian ministry. What he was trying to say, what Luke is saying is, in the first book, you get why we care about any of this. I'm chronicling the history of the church here, but you need to know why the church exists. It exists because people met Jesus and walked with him. This Jesus we know we didn't learn about in textbooks or through lectures. We are not experts on Jesusology we are people who knew him. We had a relationship with him. We walked with him. And that has made all the difference in the world. You know, I'm convinced that the backdrop of personal relationship with Jesus is the most essential ingredient to ministry. Because if you don't know him then you lose the core motivation for everything that follows. And we talked about it last Sunday, didn't we? That in Jesus Christ, everything else is held together. The church will never be built by people who love building things. It won't. Now I know there are people out there who are really good at building stuff. They can put together events like the Summer Olympics. It boggles my mind to think about what the the project management grid looks like. Let me think about the punch list on the Summer Olympics, how crazy that's got to be. But you know what? People who are good at building stuff don't build the church. I think God can redeem that, use that in a powerful way, but ultimately the people who build the kingdom of God with Him are the friends of Jesus who know Him Because they've walked with him. Skills are wonderful. God uses them all the time. And I'm so thankful for the incredible skills that I see represented at Harvest. But Jesus always uses his friends to build his church. That's just the way it works. And that's why we sometimes mistakenly presume that a person with great gifts is going to be the greatest asset to the church. This guy runs a corporation We've got to get him, and once he's here, we've got to make him a leader because then for sure he'll help us get, what's the famous word, get to the next level. What does the next level even mean? Unless that man or woman who is a CEO walks with Jesus and knows him, they will be as ineffective as a person in a coma when you really look at the big picture of what the church is. We must not make much of our talents, we must make much of the fact that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and that we knew Him and He knew us. And that's why if we're gearing up for a new, new chapter in ministry, it's not going to happen because we're hiring the best staff in the world. I think we actually have the best staff in the world. I'm sorry, I, I think we have the greatest people working at this church. I think we have some amazing leaders. We have all the, the earthly tools in place, but I'm telling you, if we're going to do something great in the Lord for the next chapter then what is going to become very important in the months and the years ahead is that each of us really engage Jesus in a walking relationship. It's knowing Him by living with Him, walking with Him. That is key ingredient number one in the church. Would you believe I'm on point number two already? Something's happening at Harvest. Ingredient number two, I believe, is an authoritative command from Jesus. I'm sorry, it does say Jesus under there, but the font got enlarged somehow. But it's an authoritative command from Jesus. Until the day, verse 2, when he was taken up in the ascension, and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The second key ingredient I see is that the kingdom of God and the church of Jesus Christ cannot be built on the basis of human ambition. You're never going to see great things done in Christian ministry because somebody thought it's a good, it's a good idea, it's the right thing to do. It doesn't happen because someone identifies a need through some demographic study and then rallies people and resources to get the job done. That isn't how the best kingdom work gets done. All gospel work, all real Christian ministry flows directly out of the authoritative command of Jesus himself. We don't do things for him because it occurs to us to do it. We do it because he commands us to do it. And in his command is power. We learn that in John 11 when we see Lazarus dead as a, as a stone in a grave and Jesus like some crazy person stands outside the grave while others heckle him, and he goes, Lazarus, come on out of there. What's your problem? And everybody's like, Jesus, um, I don't know where you grew up, but the dude's dead. You're frustrating him by telling him to get up because he can't help himself. He's dead. And Jesus goes, hey, when I command something, in that command is carried, is encapsulated all the power to obey me. And so when he says get up, Lazarus, by the virtue of that command itself, conquers death and stands. You know, it's good to do some demographic study. We've certainly done it. Thank you. We've certainly done it. We've tried to study and understand the trends, what's going on. I've looked at epodunk.com until I'm sick of that website. And I have a pretty good read on what the census data tells us is happening around us but I'm not for one second going to go from there and figure out on some Excel spreadsheet what has to happen in my own ridiculous bacterial insect-like intelligence. I'm not going to figure out what God is telling us to do. God will command it. If we listen, He will move our minds and our hearts to do what is necessary. I'm not advocating thoughtless ministry or saying that if you think and analyze you're sinful. I'm saying that all my analysis cannot trump the simple command of God. And if what we're doing doesn't flow out of this idea that God has spoken, we have heard Him, and though it sounds crazy what He just said, if He told us, then we must attempt it in obedience because He will help us get there. Now that applies to us as a church, but it also applies to us as individuals. Is there some component in your life that says that I'm doing the things I'm doing, not because I agree to do them, because I value them, because I'm working out my character, but because Jesus commanded me to do this. Is the life I'm living today and experiencing, is the life I've built all around me. Even the material possessions I have, the way I'm raising my children, whatever it is, is everything around me the result of a command that Jesus has given me. Does that make sense to you? I think part of the reason people worry so much is because they don't acknowledge the authority of Jesus. When he goes, stop worrying. I'll take care of it. And it's like we're going, well, you've got to change my circumstances so that I don't worry. But there is power contained in every command that Jesus breathes. And it says further, that the command is given through the Holy Spirit. And what that indicates to me is that when Jesus gives a command, it also creates internally a compelling from within. That it's not the kind of command that requires whips and external taskmasters and foremen to keep pushing us going, hey, you're supposed to do this. And you don't see any of our leaders outside by the trailer team going, guys, you're supposed to be here at 7.30. Whip, whip, get those things out of the trailer. We don't need to because real Christian service, commanded by by Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit, produces inside of a person an inner conviction to do something. It has been years, in fact over a decade, since I've called anyone at harvest to wake them up in the morning to remind them to serve the Lord. In the early years, that was necessary because we were all young and stupid and sleepy and, you know, we're tired. And we'd have to call each other and go, dude, you've got to get up. Are you awake? Yeah, I'm awake. Let's go. And we used to have to do that. But you know what's amazing as I watch this church grow? That Jesus is producing in us something that wakes us up. And I'm not saying everybody's jolly to be up at 6 a.m. I'm never happy to be awake at 6 a.m. Maybe a couple times in my life. But you know what? what's amazing? is It's not the alarm clock that draws us out of our slumber. It's this command of Christ through the Holy Spirit that compels us from inside of here. And that's why you know that something is happening when we don't have to beat people over the head with guilt and manipulation and carrots for reward, but just we're doing this because even if you stop paying me, even if I lost my job here, something inside me compels me to serve the Lord. If we lost our budget and our building... Well, the people who are just in it for, for the spectator sport will scatter, but there will be those who have heard the command of Jesus to build a church in Hoffman Estates for Chicagoland and the nations, and we will keep doing it, money or no money, building or no building, because that's the nature of an internal calling, a conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. I believe that's been the fuel of harvest thus far. And if we're gearing for another season, it's incredibly important that we do not grow disconnected, from the authority of Jesus' voice. I think it's one of the great tragedies in American Christianity that authority as a concept is being lost everywhere, but even for those who follow Jesus, the authority of Jesus is disappearing all over. We hear Jesus give a command, and the way we interpret it is, wow, that's a pretty good word. I should get around to thinking about that someday. We see Jesus speak a truth that runs counter to the grain of our experience, and we think, well, that's a pretty interesting point of view. It's not an interesting point of view, it's the truth. It is what shapes reality. But the the authority of Jesus seems to be slipping away from the church in America, and we've got to make sure that doesn't happen in our lives. You cannot separate a claim to love Jesus From an acknowledgement of his authority. If you have authority issues, Christianity is going to be a very difficult faith for you. Because Christianity, if you read the Bible with open eyes, is built entirely on an authority structure. There is Jesus high above all other authorities, and there is no close second. In front of Jesus, everybody bows. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the undisputed Lord, the UFC champion, the Oscar winner, the everything. That is the nature of this faith, is it is built and driven by authority. The beauty, though, is that the authority of Jesus need not be feared because he is unfailingly good. And as Benson taught us, every good thing describes Jesus. Listen to what Jesus said in his own words. Those who obey my commandments are the ones who love me. I think America is filled with people who make verbal claims to love Jesus, but by our lives we betray that claim. And what Jesus said is to know me and to love me is also to walk in obedience to my authority because if you do it, I will make your life flourish. I will bring the joy and the fruit of the Holy Spirit into your experience. But if you insist on sitting on the throne, I'm not even going to flirt with you anymore. I think that's the deal with Christianity. That's not a uh, happy, feel-good point in my message. I'm glad it's a second one so we can finish on a high note, but it's really important that we as American Christians hear this. Jesus Christ... Must have all authority over our lives. Ingredient number three convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection. So if, (coughs) excuse me, if a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is about knowing Him by walking with Him, And if the authoritative command from Jesus is loving Jesus by obeying him, then here's a third ingredient, a convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Do you realize that when the resurrected Jesus walked out of a tomb. I mean, let me t- put it this way. You've watched The Passion of the Christ, right? And haven't I said several times from this pulpit, I can't watch it more than once. It's too horrifying. Imagine seeing the real thing, not by Mel Gibson's imagination, but watching the horror of real blood and to have walked with, touched Jesus, and then watch his body be shredded by those Roman whips, pierced by those nails. And think about the horror of what you've just seen on Friday and then imagine Sunday, people are starting to murmur. There's a rumor buzzing all over town. Dude, I don't know what I just saw, but I think I just saw Jesus. I swear, it's either him or a dude that looks just like him walking around town. And his clothes are really clean. I don't know what detergent he uses, but he's glowing, man. And you know what the people thought? Listen to what the Bible itself says. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. What happened to the slide I put in there? Let, let me, let me uh, read, it, read it for you, okay? In Luke chapter 24, verse 36 to 37, actually, I don't even have it here on my notes. You don't have the other news slide, do you? Well, here's basically what it says. They were all standing around going, hey, some guys are reporting that Jesus is alive, and they're all discussing it when all of a sudden, right there in front of them, Jesus pops up and goes, hey, peace be with you. And what the Bible says in verse 37 is, they were all frightened and very much afraid because they thought that they had seen a ghost. I love when the Bible speaks so plainly like that because that's what I would have said if I were there. What is this? Are we seeing a ghost? Now, how many of you, if you saw a person you just watched die appear in front of you, would be like, oh, you must have resurrected from the dead. This makes all the sense in the world. Come eat with us. How many of you would have the presence of mind? I would be like, you know, you'd be so scared. You don't know what to do. How do you process that? And that's exactly what was going on. These guys were freaked out. And the first conclusion that any sane person would make is our mind is playing tricks with us. We are so struck by grief that we have conjured up a vision of the one we love because we can't bear to be without him. It's like people who lose it. They snap and after they lose a loved one, they sit, walk around all day long talking to them. Like they're really there. Not like, oh, if you're up in heaven watching, I'm talking. But like they're really right there. They can't let go. And some people, some scholars have conjectured that maybe that's what the whole resurrection appearance was, was just a bunch of wishful thinking by very, very sad people. But the historical record simply does not bear that up. There's there a growing number of people who watched Jesus in his resurrected bodily form walk around with them. Thomas was probably not the only one who stuck his finger through the nail holes because he doubted. And what it says is Jesus is so wise, he knew that they would never be able to finish this work he'd given them if they thought that it was just something that was a figment of their imagination. See, it's important that Jesus be God and have power over death, or else we're giving up our lives for another dude, some Jewish blue-collar carpenter in in the backwater town of Nazareth, man. That's all it would be. He was a great teacher. He's a really nice guy, but if he cannot rise from death, then he's just one of us, a slob, just like one of us, according to Joan Osborne, right? That's all he'd be. And why would you give up your life and 10% of your hard-earned cash in memory of some Jewish carpenter from Nazareth. Why would you do that? There's no way that the gospel could thrive and be sustained if the people thought it was just a figment of their imagination. And so Jesus dwelt with them. And for 40 patient days, he endured all the... Wow, look, I can see my finger on the other side. Look at this. Whoa! Let me do this so the illusion is more convincing. He's talking with them, teaching them about the kingdom. He's eating, enjoying food with them. And as he eats, the food isn't pouring out some holes or passing. It's staying in his belly. He is with them for 40 days, reunited, loving them, teaching them, putting to death all of their doubts and saying, I really have risen. This power which has carried me out of that grave, up from death, is a power available to you. It is the power by which you yourselves will pass from death to life. It is a power by which everything that imprisons you, you can be set free from. Human lives can be transformed. Attitudes can change. Addictions can be forgotten. All of this is possible because Jesus has real power and he demonstrated it. And if you are not convinced of this, you cannot fruitfully engage in gospel ministry. Because pretty soon, all of your motivations are false ones. You're doing this because you want to belong to a certain group of people. You're doing this because you want to feel like one of the good guys wearing the white hats. You you do it because you want to leave a legacy or give some lessons to your children. Let's go to feed my starving children so my kids will know that they're not the only ones who have hard times. And do you realize you can't sustain gospel ministry on those shallow bases alone? You have to be convinced that there is real power in Jesus. Or else, how do you minister to a neighbor when that neighbor comes over and says, hold me back, I'm about to go in there and just punch my husband in the face. I hate him. I never want to see him again. This marriage is over. I am so done. And you know they have little children. You love this family. You know they're struggling. And how do you walk into the house with a straight face and you go, hey, listen, buckaroo, hang in there. You can make it. How do you say that without wanting to vomit unless you're convinced beyond all shadow of doubt that Jesus has real power? How do you tell your staunchly atheist friend who's coming up with one good question after another to stump you, listen, I can't answer all those questions. I'm not as smart as you, but I know that Jesus loves you and he wants you to bow your knees before him. How do you say that without gagging on the words? You can't unless... Without doubt, you believe that Jesus has real power. Otherwise, all of ministry is just psychological games, isn't it? A little social justice with the smattering of new age psychobabble. Is that all we've got? Of course not. We have real power. But if you don't experience it, you are not going to be convinced. And that's why he presented himself patiently for 40 days, so they would experience, be convinced of the power that lies in the Son of God. In courtrooms, there's a difference between expert witnesses and eyewitnesses. Do you know the difference? An expert witness is some guy with a pipe and elbow patches who went to Harvard, and he goes, well, I wasn't there at the scene of the crime, but I know very much about blood spatter patterns. And he goes and expounds on and on. He can give incredible, convincing evidences, even though he was nowhere near the events in question. A good expert witness, they say, could sway the entire direction of a trial. But that's not the kind of witness that Jesus is raising up. Everywhere that it speaks of witnessing, it's talking about eyewitnesses. What's an eyewitness? Some person who probably has very poor grammar, has very uh, no, no technical expertise, no training in blood spatter, but they're like, I was there. I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes. This dude walked up, he just like bam, like that, and the other one, went, oh, and blood splattered. I don't know about all the, the fluid dynamics of blood, but I saw it. I was there. Your Honor. That dude hit that dude, case closed, I saw it. I'm going to tell you right now, that's the kind of witness we're called to be. And I see such constipation in the spirits of the evangelical church when it comes to evangelism because we think that what we're called to do is have expert testimony, a flawless, airtight, Ivy League argument that no one can poke holes in. That's not the effective witness that spreads the gospel. No one is going to be debated into a corner and go, fine, you got me. Where's the baptismal? Let's go. Have you ever met someone who gave in like that because you argued them into a corner? The witness of those who spread the gospel is that we have seen him, and in my own life, the resurrection power has been delivering me again and again and again. I once was blind, and now I see. I was lost, and now I'm found. This is my testimony my story of my eyewitness account of the power of Jesus in my life. This is the only witness that we're really called to bear. Leave it to the guys with education like me to try to wrestle for a little while with those guys. Oh, okay, I'll show you charts and grasp it. People are, are getting saved by the eyewitness testimony that I have seen real power. And He loves us. This is the gospel, and this is the only way that the gospel will spread in the world. And so let me just let you off the hook right now. No one's expecting you to have a memorized presentation, but everyone can tell the story of where we see Jesus beautifully displayed in power in our lives. I'll start winding down with this. This past weekend, we had a men's retreat. And I just, I'm going to tell you, God really met us there. There were so many great moments for me. I remember one hour just laying, spread eagle on a dock, listening to the water flow under me, and just having an hour alone with God. That was awesome. But for me, the undisputed highlight of the weekend was at the end when Pastor Jared, wrapping up the retreat, invited the men to come and approach an open mic. He said, look, if you want to tell us a story of how you see God showing up this weekend in your life, there's the mic, just tell it. We don't have a real big open mic culture at Harvest, so I was like waiting, going, I think it's going to be about 60 minutes before the first guy goes, all right, all right. He's pretty good. you know. But one guy after another in humility, nobody got up there to preach or to persuade, but it was just telling the stories. And it was so inspiring because I realized hearing all those things that God is working mightily in lots of people. I know where he's working in my life, but to see him working in others' lives increased my view of who he is, made me want to do even more to love him, to serve him, to be in league with him, because this God is unbelievable. He's believable, but you know, he's unbelievable. And I think this is the power of ministry when people are eyewitnesses of the power of God at work in their lives. Let me give you, I love this quote by Peter. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Isn't that powerful? Let me just review here for you. There are three key ingredients that build the gospel-centered kingdom of God. A personal relationship with Jesus, knowing Him by walking with Him, an authoritative command from Jesus, not doing things because they make sense, but doing things because thus saith the Lord Jesus. Loving Jesus by accepting His authority. And finally, convincing proof of Jesus' resurrection, that believing Jesus by experiencing His power and telling the story, bearing witness to those things which we have witnessed ourselves, seen, heard, experienced in our own Those are three indispensable ingredients. If this church is to flourish for the name of Jesus, these are important, indispensable foundations for us to lay on. But you know what? There is one more thing. You like that? But wait, there's more. There is a fourth ingredient. And we hear hints of it here. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart. Put your hearts to rest. I'm not going to preach that fourth ingredient. That's next Sunday. I'm just giving you a little preview. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. In other words, don't do anything yet. Okay? All the ingredients are there, but don't start cooking. But wait for the promise of the Father. Preheat that oven, baby. Just, just wait. Don't rush to it. Which he said you heard from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we're not going to handle rattlesnakes at our church. We're not going to require anyone to speak in tongues. But man, this is is where the power comes. When we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, it's not just about arguments and intellect, but something we can't quite explain is flowing through the simple, crude gestures of obedience that we offer to God. And lives are changing and Jesus is exalted. That requires a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I hope you come next week and you'll learn with us all together about what this means, and then we will together cry out as a church for this to come. I don't want to build a church without the Holy Spirit's power. I don't think any of us do. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. So a few things that have some very personal implications to each of us. One might be, just in the quiet moments to follow, think about where you are in your personal relationship with Jesus. Because that really is the starting point for all of this, is you need to know Jesus to make sense of all the rest. You might also want to reflect a little bit and where you stand with the authority of Jesus? Does he have the ability to command things of us and expect to be obeyed? Because that's where life and victory are found. It's to love Jesus by obeying him. <clears throat> Excuse me. And are you an eyewitness of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, is this simply the the God of your fathers, or is this a God you are meeting even today? Are you looking for Him? Are you seeing Him? Because He's everywhere. He is working, man. He is working in your life right now, and that's the testimony we bear. Maybe that's where our eyes need to be turning right now. So would you just do some reflection on your own, and then as you wrap that up, pray for harvest. Then in our next season as a church. God will explode on the scene with this kind of ministry. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.